Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. It'll, it'll all work out, don't, don't worry. <laughs> Um, I was going to start out with a crass reference to Ode to Billy Joel. You know, it was the 3rd of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day, <laughs> because it is the 3rd of June. Um, but I thought it might not go down any better than it actually did. <laughs> so here, here are bits and pieces from the, uh, from the book. There is a psychological condition known as cartocarcoethes in which people see the whole world as nothing more than a series of maps. They look at clouds, rock formations, wallpaper patterns, the stains on a dirty floor, and they see their examples of intentional cartography. The puddle, the puddle of blood looks like Africa. Every high-heeled boot resembles Italy. A woman's pubic triangle becomes the Mekong Delta before or after deforestation. Some say this is a form of pareidolia, a condition in which arbitrary pieces of information suddenly take on vast significance in the sufferer's mind. And this in itself may be considered a version of apophenia, seeing patterns and linkages in sets of essentially random data. Others say that cartocarcoethes is just a fancy word made up by map obsessives to make themselves feel better about their own obsession. But perhaps you don't need to be a complete obsessive in order to feel the need for orientation, to long for a method by which we can chart our position in a universe of floating uncertainties. We read the map. We read the world. We read environments and faces and bodies. We hope to know where we are. Is that so entirely unreasonable? It was 6.30 on one of those long, restless city summer evenings, a time when Zach Webster could justifiably have closed up the store. Chances were there'd be no more customers today. There were few enough at the best of times. In fact, he could have opened and closed pretty much whenever he liked. Nobody was breathing down his neck. Ray McKinley, his boss, the owner of the business and of much else besides, prided himself on a hands-off management style. He trusted Zack, which was perhaps only to say that he was well aware of Zack's overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And since the sign on the door said that the opening hours were, seven, were 10 in the morning till 7 in the evening, those were the hours that Zack kept. The store was named Utopiates, a name that by no means said it all. It was an oblique reference to an Oscar Wilde quotation. A map of the world that does not include Utopia is not worth even looking at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. 
But as Zach would tell anybody who'd listen, there are in fact a great many maps of utopia starting with the one in the 1516 edition of Thomas More's book, as well as any number of later engravings, woodcuts, prints, and so on. And that was the business Utopias was in, selling cartographic antiques. Some were no more than decorative curiosities, but the best of them were rare, expensive, perhaps important, maybe even museum quality. It was a specialist market, and sometimes it seemed to Zach that it was too special by half. He didn't think Utopias could keep going much longer. He was a single, poorly played employee, but the takings were scarcely enough to cover his wages, and he felt that unless something dramatic happened, the end would come very soon indeed. Now he sat at his desk and stared out the window into the street his gaze as idle as a gaze ever gets. And when he saw what looked like a bundle of rags moving along the sidewalk, he needed a moment to realize what he was looking at. Naturally, he knew the bundle wasn't moving under its own steam, that there must be somebody inside it. There was a small population of tattered street people in the area, but that didn't seem to be quite what he was looking at here. For one thing, these rags had obviously started out as fine fabrics. They were dirty and matted now, but they still had an air of ruined luxury. The bundle came to a halt, was still for a moment, and then began to rise. As the person inside stood up, a head emerged, a woman's head, the face young but not youthful. With long hair the color of wet newspaper, she might have been beautiful once, but not recently. Her eyes looked up at the utopia sign and saw something hopeful there. She hugged the rags to herself and walked toward the store. Instinctively, Zach got up from his desk. His first thought was to block the entrance to keep out an undesirable. But he opened the door just a little so he could speak to the woman, tell her, with as much emphasis as was required, to keep on walking. But as he looked her in the eye, something small and compassionate stirred in him, and he felt he ought to do just a little more than that, maybe give her some money. The woman stared back at him, hesitantly, suspiciously, but then she detected something benign and trustworthy in his face and said in a clotted, deliberate voice, uh, would you help me? Can you? Zach assumed she too was thinking about money, and he felt around in his pockets, only to discover that he had an insultingly small amount of change. The woman spoke again. What is this place? Is it a clinic? No, he said, it's a map store. She looked horribly disappointed, though not surprised, as though this was only the latest in an endless series of disappointments. In fact, there was an emergency room not too far away, and Zach was about to give her directions, but he never got that far. The rags were evidently held in place only because she clutched them to herself. The news that Utopias wasn't a medical facility caused her to slacken her grip, and they fell all the way to the ground. Zack suddenly had a naked woman standing on his doorstep. She had a lean, pale body, grubby at the edges, the skin loose. But Zack hardly had time to take in the sight before the woman swiveled, turning her back on him. Her back looked less naked than the rest of her. It was marked with tattoos wild lines and symbols that Zach first read as a meaningless accumulation of ink. And yet there was something compelling about it, something that suggested it wasn't entirely haphazard. 
He couldn't be sure, but he thought it might just possibly be a kind of wild ramshackle map. But the glimpse was brief, and then the woman turned again to face him, quickly pulling the rags up over herself. She'd allowed him a glimpse of something precious, and that was as much as he was entitled to. Unsure of what he'd seen and why he'd been shown it, and to a large extent wishing he hadn't seen it at all, Zach stuttered that he could close up the store and take the woman to the emergency room if that was what she really wanted. She said nothing but shook her head. Zach had no idea what to do next. He feared the two of them might stay like that for the rest of the night, perhaps for all eternity without words or volition. But then he noticed a battered metallic blue Cadillac parked a little way down the street. Maybe it had been there the whole time. Now it moved, traveling a hundred yards or so, until it pulled up directly in front of the store. The driver, a man in a beat-up leather jacket, pushed open the two front doors of the car before he got out. Zack watched him move swiftly and determinedly toward the woman, placed one hand firmly on her arm, the other on her waist, and pushed her inside the car. It wasn't violent, it wasn't even rough, but it seemed irresistible. Certainly the woman didn't resist. And once she was inside, the driver slammed the passenger door shut, then looked up for a second and caught sight of Zack staring at him. Zack turned away, avoided eye contact, pretended lamely that he was checking something in the window of the store. He didn't dare watch as the man got into the Cadillac and drove away. Zack remained in the doorway, poised among various kinds of uncertainty. The incident had been so brief, so self-contained. What had he actually seen? Was that really a map on the woman's back? Had she really been showing it to him? And if so, why? The mental image was already fading, and he felt that was probably no bad thing. And it was the guy in the car, the woman's keeper, boyfriend, kidnapper. He looked in the direction the car had gone, but well aware that there was nothing to see, no conclusion to be drawn. It was a little while before he realized someone was standing next to him. It was a woman of about his own age, tall, a little gawky, with something steely yet quizzical in her face. She was wearing thrift store clothes, and her big dark eyes looked out through ornate tortoise glasses. Something about the image didn't quite suit her, as if she was trying to appear more bookish and hipsterish than she really was. She straddled a bike that was either an old wreck or something very cool and retro. Zack couldn't tell which. Did you just see what I just saw, she said to Zack. Uh, I'm not sure what I saw, Zack said, honestly enough. Sure, but the woman and the stuff on her back, you saw that, right? Yeah, said Zack. How could he not have seen it? The woman looked at the window of the store with cool curiosity. How long has this place been here? Quite a while. Strange, I, I never even noticed it before. Zack didn't think that was all that strange. If you weren't interested in antique cartography, you'd have no reason to be aware of Utopia's existence. Come on in if you like, he said. Take a look around. He wasn't quite sure why he said that. She certainly didn't look like a potential customer, a fact that was confirmed when she took half a step forward toward the front door, hesitated, peered into the interior of the store, and gave a mild but distinct shudder. No, I don't think so, she said. Uh, this place of yours kind of gives me the creeps. As Zack watched her get on her bike and pedal away, 
he couldn't understand quite why he found her remark so painfully hurtful. Thank you. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I guess you, you asked. We, uh, we, I guess we share this mic. Well, I guess we share. Can, we share. can, you, can you hear us can both? Can you hear us if we do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, we can hand it back and forth. Okay. All right. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look up this passage on page 66. I think that you share some, some qualities with, uh, with our man, Zach. You, sh you share some interests with Zach. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and one in particular that I wanted to read. Um, he uh, he's, is explaining himself um, to another character. He says, uh, urban exploration, investigating the city, creative trespass, going where I'm supposed to, getting into abandoned structures, factories, closed down hospitals, derelict power stations, you know? Uh, this is this is what he this is what Zach likes to do in his spare time, and there, over the last few years, you've been doing a lot of writing about urban exploration, right? Is mm -hmm. uh, this novel is in some case, some ways uh, an outgrowth of that work? Yeah, I mean, of course, it, in in some ways, when I'm writing the book, I am all my characters all the time. You know, I mean, the murderers and the women and the children, um, and sometimes it's hard to to distance yourself to make sure that Zach's interests are sufficiently different from mine. Um, and that's certainly, a, that's certainly a place where there's a bit of overlap. Um, as you know, I'm a kind of manic pedestrian. And one of the things I was very keen to do was make sure he wasn't quite as manic a pedestrian as I was, because it would have, it would have been possible to make him the guy who walked endlessly around the city. So I wanted to make that kind of gap between, between him and me. Um, but as you probably know, there was a book of mine called um, Walking in Ruins, which because this, this book just took forever, to, ever to write and get edited and changed. Um, to such an extent that I actually wrote another book, this non-fiction book called Walking in Ruins, um, at the same time. Um, and of the two, of the two Venn diagrams, there is a, a, a strange overlap. Um, you know, and I am. I, mean, I make no secret of the fact that I am Zach to the extent that, you know, I am fascinated by those strange alleyways and back alleys and forbidden zones and what he and I would call edgelands, the place where the city stops. Um, and it, it may be a. It's not quite town. It's not quite country. It's not quite industrial. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these edgelands don't have to be on the edge. You know, you have a facade of um, a rich and expensive shopping area, and if you go the the service street behind, you know, that's where the garbage mm -hmm. and the the broken masonry is. Um, so to that extent, yes. I mean, <laughs> guilty as charged. I think is is a simple answer to that. Yeah. So how many people have you killed? <laughs> No, I, I would, no, no, you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to say no, that in public. I was almost there with a smart answer. I was going to say, in my mind, many, many. Yeah, that's right. Only, only in my mind. Um, now, the, the, one of the interesting things, I, I want to ask you at some point about fiction and nonfiction uh, in, a, in, a, in a more general way, but in, in this particular case, uh, was it odd to be writing so in such detail about a city that, as far as I it does not exist? I mean, it's not, it, um, and I kept, I kept waiting to figure out where it was, uh, I was a little intrigued by Hope and Tenth, but I realized that that would be Hope and Olympic, right? There's no Hope and Tenth. It's 
yeah. hoping uh, ninth and hoping eleventh. But uh, but <laughs> but uh, I kept I kept wondering if it was if there was if there was a, a real model, and it seems like there isn't. Well, um, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because, as I say, it it, it had a long gestation. This book, um, and it went it it was shown to a lot of editors. Um, most of whom suggested I should be writing a completely different book. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that quite a lot of them seem to be saying, I, well, one of them at least said I should be writing the Da Vinci Code, but said in London. Um, and that seemed to me, yeah, so there would be a treasure hunt in the, you know, in the sewers of London. Um, and I, somebody somewhere probably should be writing that book, but not me, and not based on the manuscript that I had sent him. Um, a lot of people in the beginning seemed to assume that I was writing about a European city, and I don't, f um, I mean, I think people read it and see the city and they project their notion of a city onto it. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that it was transparently an American city. Um, I think having, uh, if, um, if the character there uh, hadn't been driving a Cadillac, you know, if you'd been driving a Rolls Royce, that yes. might have that might have located it, or if you'd been driving a, a Fiat, that might have located it somewhere. Um, I was very keen that it should take place in a, although it's not a quote-unquote real city, and I think we could argue that all novels take place in unreal cities anyway, even if they're set in London or, or LA, but I didn't want it to take place nowhere. You know, I didn't want it to be in some, I mean, I, I, one of the models I had for it was uh, Springfield, The Simpsons, and you know, w when they, you know, w when, the, I mean, when they, when they need a, when they need a revolving restaurant, there's a revolving restaurant there, and when they need a desert, there's a desert there right side of town, um, and so it, it had these features which are common to a lot of, to a lot of cities, but I guess I try to avoid. You know, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. There's not. There's no Eiffel Tower. There's no River Thames. Um, there is a subway system, which perhaps resembles the LA, the LA system more than it does, say, say London, because people seem to be very suspicious about it in the book. People don't quite understand what this su what this subway what this subway is for. Um, so, yeah, so, so I mean, it, it's. You know, I think of a Italo Calvino and the Invisible City. I mean, he's he's sort of he's kind of name checked in there. Um, so I had the sense that I wanted it to be nowhere but everywhere. And I thought this was, you know, as writers do, I thought this was a new and exciting idea. And my my editor says they get one of those in, you know, once a month. This <laughs> this novel set in a in a in a fantasy city, yeah. uh, and that the trick is to make it seem real, even though it's unreal. Yeah. But I guess that's a trick with writing any novel setting and setting it anywhere. Right, which which it does. It, it, yeah, yeah, very real. The, um, you, there's a long series of meditations. You read a little bit toward, from towards the end about the nature of map love, uh, and lo a long meditation about mapping, and maps and what they mean, what they represent, how they represent. Um, and I kept making notes to myself with, with for nice, clever questions for you. Uh, one was going to be about the map and the territory, and then you said. Something about the map and the territory. I, I don't want to. I won't say that, right? <laughs> so I, I, I kept getting. You kept um, upstaging my questions as, as, as we went along. But you wrote a piece for us uh, a year and a half ago, or maybe even two years ago, about the miniature. Uh, right, and about, about miniatures in art, and and if, and and one of the ideas that came in at the end of that essay was about the the idea that a novel is always a, a miniature. 
It's yeah. always a kind of squeezing down. It's always a kind of representation. It's always a, a, a selection of various things that you're going to represent. And it feels like this is part of the same kind of meditation on the nature of representation. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't put it um, together in quite that way. I mean, I think it's true, and I think it is what I'm doing. Um, that, you know, a map by definition, if it depicts the whole world, is it's equivalent to the whole world. It's the same size, the, the, the one-to-one, yeah. Um, and that all maps are partial, and all maps are, they have interests, they're never disinterested. Um, the map is always made to in somebody's interests and it may not be yours and it may not be mine you know it may be um google's or it may be you know bing mm -hmm. um that the features that are shown on a map um always have a meaning there's no way it's important I mean, you can't you can't have a simply neutral map you know it's a, it may be a driving map or a walking map or a real estate map um and in the same way you can't in the same way that you can't have a map that covers the entire territory, you can't have a novel that covers the entire territory because it would be, again, the equivalent of the world. It would be the same size and shape and, and right. detail. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is miniaturization. And I guess it's also about finding um, a slice or a, yeah, an area that... It's a part for the whole. It, mm -hmm. it, it has enough features and it has enough resonance that it tells you what you need to know about the, the, the place, the territory, the world. Um, and I guess, I mean, that's what all art does as well as what all, what all map making does. Um, I mean, another thing I would say about the map is that, again, uh, I'm not quite Zach, but I, I, and I don't collect maps, but I've always kind of accumulated them. You know, whenever I go somewhere, even if, ever since I was a kid, it seemed that the map was the way to get to know a place, or the way to know a place. Um, and I'm well aware that one of the recurrent themes, to the extent that you know any writer really grasps what, he's, grasps what he's writing about, it does seem to me that I'm always writing about the relationship between people and things. Um, you know, historically I've written about Volkswagens and women's shoes and, and maps. Um, although they're objects, they refer to to something beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and within those, th these women who appear in the book who've got maps on them, that's a way of turning a person into a thing, that these, these women appear with the maps. They mean something. We don't know what. We don't know if they do mean anything. There's a lot of, uh, what's the word, switch and yeah. bait and switch. Right. <laughs> um, um, but I mean, but I very much wanted it to be. Um, I mean, there is a mystery. There is something to be solved. But I wanted it yeah. to be. I wanted it to be a real mystery and a real solution. You know, I didn't want to write a completely postmodern. Uh, you know, the mystery is there is no mystery after after you after you've plowed through three hundred pages. <laughs> do you ha do you have you have maps in your head um, too? Are you are you are, are you when you when you're out walking or you're walking in relation to a map in your head? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That doesn't doesn't everybody? No, as it turns out. Right? Yeah, no. My my wife, when we moved to L.A., she could not she could not figure out how to get around. And I said, "Well, you read the map. You look at the map." And she, and she said, oh, "I don't know how to do that. I just know how. Just tell me to go down here, take a left at the third light, and take a right at the." That's how she got everywhere. Oh, right. I mean, but she but the kind of idea of an internalized map was foreign to her. She's now figured it out. But I mean, how to do that? But, but she did. But, but it was it map. didn't come naturally. It was not the way she looked at the world. And I, I just read a piece that talked about Manhattan um, and the and the subway map. 
uh, of Manhattan, kind of famous subway map. Uh, you know that the upper, um, the upper west side, the upper west side is directly north of the lower east side. Right. No. No. I didn't. Right. Yeah. And but because the map is always is always presented as uh, as if uh, Manhattan is actually straight up and down, uh, it we think of it as straight north. And so I've, we've all got this bad map in our head, right? Yeah. Um, uh, of Manhattan because Manhattan is actually on on a, on an angle. Yeah. And the um, <laughs> and, and in London. Um, I have both an internalized map of London and an internalized map of the tube, mm -hmm. the tube system, and it's a it is an incredibly elegant map um, of the tube system, but it bears a very scant relationship to to the world above, and sometimes um, it will appear that you're going quite a long distance on the map, but you're only going a very short distance on the tube and, and vice versa, that there are two territories that are sort of superimposed. And certainly when I first lived in London, yeah, I, I would take a tube, you know, to go 200 yards and then realize what a, what, what a fool, what a fool I'd been. Uh, <laughs> or, and, and vice versa, I, yeah. I've, got, I've gotten off the subway because it, it would look like it was a short walk and yeah. three miles later, yeah. yeah. Um, you, you write nonfiction, you write fiction. Um, do you ever find yourself um, slipping into fiction while you're writing your nonfiction and having to kind of rein yourself back in, or do you not rein yourself back in and just let it go? Yeah, I mean, you've got to rein yourself in somewhat, I think. Um, but again, I, I... How much do you lie, I guess I'm saying? Uh, well, I mean, as much as necessary, you know. As, um, you know, I don't want to sort of make out that all my books are absolute torture to write um, or to read, but... Um, the book that I, the book before um, the last art of walking that that had a, a long um, inception I mean largely because it was not a question of what you put in it was a question of what you left out yeah. and it seemed that it was you know I wasn't writing the encyclopedia of walking I was writing a, a book um, and you know it was you know it was like a a bag full of stones and you know there were lumps and bumps and you know, it was, I mean, it's always about organization. It's always about making a shape and a, and a structure. Um, but certainly at one point, you know, when it was going all over the place and I couldn't, and I didn't know where it was going, it did occur to me, well, yeah, the solution to this is to say it's a novel, you know, and it's a book about a man who's writing a book about walking. And so, and so that my struggles become his struggles and, you know, and then he finds love on page 273. Um, but I, I, I resisted that in the finally. But yeah, I mean, we all, we all lie. We all, I mean, and the ones who, you know, the difference is some of us admit it and some people don't, and, and some readers admit it and some readers don't want to admit it. Yeah, it, it, well, is the selection, the selection process itself a, f a form of lying about reality? Well, I think it's the same as, as the map, you know, that yeah. the, the map can't, can't list every feature, so the moment you start selecting, you are, in a sense, uh, you're, you're, I mean, it's, I don't think you're falsifying, mm -hmm. but you are reshaping, you're making... You're making the ex if it's if it's personal, if it's a memoir, you're reshaping it in your own image of what you want your own image to be. In the sense that you know, if everybody in this room drew a map of their LA, they'd they'd all be different. But mm -hmm. they they might be to greater or lesser extent inaccurate. But they wouldn't be they wouldn't be lies. No. Yeah. 
They'd all be between the ten and the hills. <laughs> Uh, and there was this great gouge down the map, which would be the 405. The, the, um, the, the, other, the other form of mapping that's in the, in the book is our tattoos, right? I mean, it, literally in some cases, but in general, the tattoo is a, is a representation of reality as well, right? Uh, and it, often, uh, or representation, I guess, of dragons and irrealities of various kinds. But they're representational. Uh, and, and in some cases in your book, there are people who have tattoos of maps. Um, so you're, you're thinking about the tattoo as a form of representation as well? Um, as, a f as a form of representation, but I think also as a form of scarring, as a form of marking. Um, in um, in the, the new John Waters book, um, Karsik, mm -hmm. there's a lot of fantasy sequences, and there's one bit where he... Um, he runs off and joins a carnival, and he's displayed as the last man in America without a tattoo. <laughs> and you know, I somehow feel that I, sometimes I think that's going to be me, or you know. Um, that's my next question. So you, don't, you don't have any? Look, I've been thinking about getting a tattoo for for 40 years, and I haven't and I haven't come to a conclusion. Um, so I guess it's yeah. you know, it, it's kind of too late. My my big idea was to have um, not maps, but I would, I would have a series of circles on both arms and then everywhere I went in the world I would find a tattooist to do a skull in each I mean, you know, uh -huh. any kind of tattooist however rubbish they are they can generally do a, do a skull so you'd finish up with skulls of the world but uh, <laughs> but it seems like but again it seems like more of a literary conceit than an actual thing I'd, I'd want to do yeah well and that's, that would take a little bit of time to get that done yeah I mean it would be a, you know, I'm not afraid of commitment Tom yeah <laughs> So, uh, why do you write? Uh, uh, seriously. No, I mean, seriously, I don't know. Um, I, I think I know why I started writing. Um, I think it was, you know... I mean, I everyone who writes says, it's all about, hey, look at me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sometimes about, hey, look at me and love me. And I think you grow out of that very quickly if you're if you're serious about it because people don't. I mean, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Um, uh, I mean, it's a tough question, um, and I could give you I'll give you a better answer tomorrow when this is all over. Um, but I mean, it, it, as, as a way of sort of relating to the world and experiencing the world and describing the world and understanding the world. Um, it, that writing does it for me, and, and reading as well, um, in a way that, you know, much as I like photography, much as I like film, they don't seem to help me understand the world in quite the way reading and writing does. Mm. I think in a nutshell, that's, you know, well, not in a nutshell, but in, a, right. in, a, in, in two sentences. And I, for me, there's, there's also, I mean, I feel like I'm part of something, I'm, I'm part of the, of writing as a, as a, you know, I don't want to say it's part of a community because I never, never met any of these people I'm thinking about when I think about writing, um, or very, you know, I've met some, but, you know, I feel, I feel like it's somehow I'm, I'm part of something larger than the writing that I'm doing. Is that, is that part of it for you at all? Um, yeah, you're part of something larger, but at the same time, there is this very direct connection. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not quite, it's not direct that I'm, you know, I'm in direct communication with James Joyce, but, but when he wrote that, he was alone at a desk. And when I read it, I'm alone in a chair. And it, you know, 
he's not there, but he was there when he wrote it. I mean, it's absence and presence, those French, those French guys. Um, <laughs> um, but it is that. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm in awe of stand-up comedians. I mean, it seems to me that that's, uh, if not a skill, at least a, you know, a high-wire act. I mean, a risk that I couldn't begin to imagine. But that, that sort of talking to an audience whether it's a you know one on one or or a group that seems to me the most admirable thing and when they're expecting you to be funny and when they're heckling you that seems to be yeah, unthinkable to me yeah. but, but, but it would throw me off my game yeah. yeah but at least if you're kind of um you know when you're writing you know you're not getting heckled at the time you may you may get heckled subsequently but um and this is a very polite audience nobody's 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 heckling us here which is nice. <laughs> right uh speaking of which should we open it up sure by all means yeah I'll, I'll let you go ahead and okay because um, there are the questions i mean i think we'll be able to hear questions from the floor yeah so the heckling No, I mean, the, for me, there is no heckling. Um, no, I was saying. But eventually, someone heckling you. There's a critic somewhere. There's a critic somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. So what's that is it a heckler? Um, no, it's more like a, it feels more like a school bully. Actually, it feels, <laughs> you know, that, that bullies know what you care about and they know what you love, and you know they know how to get to you. Um, I. I I almost don't read my reviews. Um, I kind of scan them, and I only remember the bad ones, of course. Um, have I ever had a review that, have, that has done me any good? Um, have I ever had a review that I've really kind of listened to? I, I'm guessing not. I'm guessing not, to be honest. Um, I mean, individuals, friends, you know, people who've communicated with me and say, you know, this bit could be better or this this bit doesn't work for me. Um, I'll listen to that. But in the end, I don't know. No, I mean, it's a lonely, it's a lonely, lonely life. Um, I listen to my editor, but, you know, you can get as many opinions as you can people. And in the end, you stay, you know, you keep your head down and and hope that someone at the end of it, you know, at the end of the tunnel, you come up with something that people are something that you're, that you're not ashamed of and that other people will like. Okay, let me take that one step further. So if you read an essay, hmm? are you reading a bully or what are you reading? An essay about me. Just, I think, you know, I see criticism as the art of the essay. That's yeah. what I think criticism is best, what it is. Because I appreciate criticism and I appreciate historically good critics that have been here in, in separate, you know, non-fictional worlds writing about, you know, no, I mean, I mean, I read essays as well. Um, I mean, I'm thinking. Um, and, you, and you write. Them. And I write, I write them indeed. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've given anybody. I mean, I, I, I write essays and I occasionally write book reviews. It's probably I can't remember when I last gave anybody a bad review. Um, I think you start out kind of thinking you're, you've got a sword and you're going to denounce people who are, you know, who you think are not good. Um, and I think as you get a bit older, you, you think just the the agony of writing is so 
Yeah, it, it's difficult enough without having some, you know, some guy writing for the LA Times telling you you've done it all wrong. Um, and I mean, I'm trying to think the, the the big takedown of Woody Allen is that John Didion or is that um, Renata Adler? I think it's John Didion, but that's a bit of bullying. I mean, that's that really is taking Woody Allen behind the behind the bike shed and giving him a kicking. I think. Um, and the fact that I vaguely agree with it is, you know, is um, neither here nor there. But I mean, that, 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 but we want we all want we we want essays and criticism to be constructive, but I'm not sure that they always are. I don't have I don't have a complete answer for you. Is the is the obvious answer? How much self hackling do you do? <laughs> ah, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, there certainly comes a point when I've written something and I try to read it not as me. Um, it's not about sort of trying to be my, my not not about being my worst reader or trying to find fault, but about yeah, stepping outside and thinking, what would? Yeah, I mean, not, not, when I'm when I'm reading something I've written, I'm not quite sure who I am. You know, I'm not my ideal reader, um, but neither am I the bully critic either. I guess I try to be a kind of common reader. I guess if I mean, it, it, one question is if I. If, as a reader, I discovered these books by Jeff Nicholson, would I write? Would, would I like them? Um, and I suppose the answer is basically yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, would I? Do I sometimes wish you do it a little differently? Um, certainly, as the years go by, you do. Um, I mean, I actually find it that works both ways. That um, occasionally and, and very unwillingly, um, I read books that I wrote ten years ago or fifteen years ago, and the. I mean, there, there are two things that kind of happen. One is, I, there is that, you know, I just want to change everything. I want to, you know, why did I put that word there? And uh, um, but then other times you think, oh yeah, this guy wasn't so bad, you know, he was, you know, he, he wasn't so bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that business of trying to get outside of yourself when you write. I mean, I'm sure you know, it's. Um, I think I do probably a lot. I probably do do it a lot. Yeah. Uh, Sixteen books. Oh no, 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 no. Twenty, twenty-one with this. Uh, <laughs> no, sixteen, sixteen novels. Sixteen yeah. novels. I'm very, very old. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Um, I'd say absolutely the opposite. No, I mean in the beginning, um, I, you know fairly literally didn't know what I was doing. And so, you know, I mean, it's like the first album, you know, that, that people are uninhibited and they just prepared to try anything and it either works or it doesn't. And then the second and the third. And then after at some point you start taking yourself seriously and thinking, you know, I've done that in that book and I've done this in this book and it's time to do something different. And um, I mean, part of it, you know, this question of where ideas come from, which people get asked, I always think that ideas are not that difficult. I think, you know, a smart group of people like us could come up with some ideas for, for books. Um, the problem is just finding that spark or that energy to, to make that push that says, you know, it's not just an idea, 
it's something that I can shape into a, into a novel. Um, I can take this material and make it mine. Um, so no, it doesn't get any easier at all. And this one was a, an absolute nightmare. <laughs> and, and why? I think what was so difficult about this one, was, I mean, it's partly what I was saying earlier about not wanting it to be postmodern, that, you know, it's a literary thriller. Um, and I, I'm pretty happy with the literature. I find the literature easy. Um, and I mean, one of the things I found out in a previous book of mine called Bleeding London is that if you have um, a, a real plot, a sort of a you know, A follows B follows C and with a mystery and some kind of resolution. Uh, you can hang all kind of weird stuff on it. So that's what I was, that's what I was doing with the maps and the tattoos and the women and what was going on and why was it going on. So that allowed me the scope to put the weirdness about mapping and territory onto it. But at the same time, it had to be a real that to be a real problem, a real solution, you know, a real question and a real answer. Um, and that was, that was hard. Um, I mean, you think you've got the idea and then, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know it's not quite working. So you take it along to your editor and she says she agrees with you. Um, <laughs> and, but as a, and, and so then you kind of, you know, you think you'll throw lots of backstory onto it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll explain everything. Um, and that, you know, so it gets more and more convoluted, so that doesn't work. So then you think, well, now I'll make it really simple. But then if you make it too simple, you haven't got, you know, you haven't got the thing itself. Um, so it was, it was about finding the balance between, you know, the, the through plot and the, um, the literature, for want of a better, want of a better word. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the integrity comes from from the writing um, and the sensibility, rather rather than from the the form itself. If I if I understand your your question. Yeah, but, you know, the more you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, an essay does bully, and so I just I wanted to be more open to your thinking in terms of maybe formal structure counts, you know, and maybe certain structures lend themselves to locating your questions and the answers with. For instance, this, this book, uh, in, in, it, it starts off, and I think it's going to be like an Elmore Leonard or like a Carl Hyacin novel, where you have, a, one, you have one perspective from one set of your characters, and you have the second chapters from a different perspective from a different <coughs> subset of the character, third. And, and, uh, and what Hyacin would do is just go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, uh, until the last three chapters where each chapter would have one, two, three within them. Right, and it, and it would just it would kind of march along like that, and you kind of do you you go back and forth between these perspectives, but then you just add some extra ones in, you go yeah. you, you move them around, you sometimes yeah. double them up. Um, you're you're playing with what's the standard thriller structure. Yeah, I mean I, I can't give. I mean it's certainly not. Um, yeah, I couldn't draw you a map a plan of that structure that you're describing. Um, which is, I mean, is only to say that I, I did what felt 
natural at the time. Um, there is quite a long section at the end where we, we have a flashback with one of the characters which explains, it, it sort of explains him. Um, and it, but there, then there are small flashbacks throughout the, throughout the novel. But I mean, it's, you know, you do what feels right at the time. Um, that, yeah, I mean, it felt it felt organic rather than imposing a one, two, three, one, two, three structure, um, which I mean, yeah, is is kind of something like musical. It doesn't have to be, you know, two verses and a chorus. It can be the chorus and then three verses and then um, a different chorus if that's a if that's a, a meaningful analogy. Can I ask one, 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 one question about your about the thing that you did? Well, can I, can, can I do that? Can I put that out there? Yeah. The thing is, um, writing, as you, as you suggested, is a lonely thing. You sit at, sit at your desk by yourself. Um, uh, and the walking that you do tends to be solo walking. Tends to be, not, not always, but yeah. So what was it like to take this kind of thing that you do uh, as, a, as a writer and a walker um, and have a camera crew following you around. Well, you know, when I was when I was really young, when I was like twelve or thirteen, this was the kind of the golden age of English TV. And I'm not sure if you you got all of them over in this country, but certainly there'd be Alan Wicker and um, Alistair Cook and. Um, then there was Kenneth Clark, who did the history of civilization, and they, they were always kind of, you know, wandering around, pointing and 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 and, and, and pontificating about art and culture and civilization. Um, and when I was a really young kid, that was one of my, you know, my small fantasies. You know, that I would that there was a that there was a camera there was a camera crew following me the whole time. And yeah, um, you know, Palladian columns. Um, and of course, you know, right. I mean, the nightmare or the difficulty um, you know, is seeing yourself. I've, I mean, I've just about got used to the sound. I, mean, I don't love the sound of my own voice, but I know what it sounds like. But seeing yourself from, you know, from behind and the side and from angles that you never, you never see normally—that's uh, that's a really tough bit. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the process of doing it was just fine. The, the results were, the, were the, the hard bit to live with. I, I guess I was wondering if the, if it just kind of ruined the actual walk. Well, yeah, I mean, it was faked. Yeah, yeah it was fake. <laughs> you know, s stand on this corner and uh, and talk and point. But um, I mean, it felt far more natural by the end of it. I mean, it took an afternoon. Um, yeah, it was feeling far more natural by the end than it did at the beginning. And I and I guess you know, Jonathan Meads has been doing this for twenty years. He's he's fairly sanguine about. Um, yeah. Uh, other question? Yes, sir. As you read that very generous answer from your novel, I felt the distinct impression that was set in London that could be because of the accident. In my think, I don't know if you wrote this, but uh, I heard the, tink the tinkling of the bells as you opened it. <laughs> Well, in fact, uh, I mean, I, I was reading a shortened version of, of the of the passage, and yeah, I actually do describe. Yeah, you, 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 uh, that's very shrewd, actually. That, that's 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 really good because um, I do pick, I can picture the street, and I could take you to the street, and that is in London, um, and it's somewhere by Baker Street, and um, of course I can't remember my own words, but there was. Um, I described the other businesses in the in the in the row of stores, 
and one is a, a French home maker and one's a wedding dress store. Um, and I would have to take you back to sort of 1985, but if I could do that, I could take you to this street in, uh, in London, and that's, and that's what was going on there. So, um, yeah, guilty. Guilty on that one, I'm afraid. Thank you. I, I noticed that as well, but the way uh, she spoke seemed very American. No. So her, the actual words. So I did sound well, I'm delighted to hear it. I mean, you know, I... Yeah. I which is good, it's kind of marrying the uh, London feel with LA or New York or some major cities. Well, I think uh, we can uh, get informal now. <laughs> and, uh, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.